If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, we will look at God's Word together. While you're turning, just uh, to bring us up to speed on where we are at, uh, we are taking a break from First John and looking at Acts. And at our point in the text, uh, the Holy Spirit has just fallen on the church as promised, it's the day of Pentecost. And there are a ton of people in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And the, they think the disciples are drunk. There's a huge commotion. And in that, Peter turns to the crowd and begins to preach. And we are going to pick up in verse 22. Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourself. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for he will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts today. Oftentimes in the culture wars, you will hear someone argue that all of America's founding fathers were Christians. And while it's true that 
The pilgrims were Christians fleeing religious persecution that came to our country. And it is certainly true that a Christian worldview and a Christian ethic influenced much of our early country. We'd have a hard time saying that every single founding father was a Christian. In fact, many of the founding fathers were what we would call a deist, and they were influenced by enlightenment thinking. A deist is a person who believes in a creating God, but that that God is not sovereign or or, or powerful over the world, but essentially just walked away from his creation after creating it. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. He was friends with the evangelist George Whitfield, but as Whitfield and Franklin both attest, he never believed in the crucified and risen Christ. Another deist would be President Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson is interesting for many reasons, but one is because he created his own Bible. Essentially, Jefferson took a a razor and glue and cut out all the parts of the Bible he liked and, and, and threw out the parts he didn't. His Bible is called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And in this gospel that he created, Jefferson removed all the supernatural elements from his account. He removed all the references to Christ's deity and reduced the gospel to a book of morals. Why do I say all that? Because these are the last words of Jefferson's gospel of the Jefferson Bible. Quote, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb, wherein no man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb, and departed. The end. In Jefferson's Bible, he leaves his readers with Jesus in a tomb. Jefferson essentially in his Bible puts Jesus in the tomb, closes the door, and walks away. The end. But friends, I'm happy to tell you today that that was not the end of the story. This morning, we as Christians can take heart that the grave is not the final story for Christ, which means it's not the final story for his followers. As we've already said, Christosanesti, he is risen. This morning, I urge you to trust the promises of God and believe in the risen Christ. Trust the promises of God, and believe in the risen Christ. And in this passage, this passage presents us with four reassuring reasons to trust the promises of God and believe in the risen Christ. First, it says Christ's death and resurrection were a part of God's definite plan of redemption. Second, God the Father kept his promise and did not abandon the Son to the clutches of death. Third, Jesus is truly God. He is exalted with the Father and is King David's Lord. And fourth, the church has the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, as we work through this passage, if you've if you're been here a while, you know that generally we'll take a passage, especially in the epistles, and we just walk through the verses. This is going to be a little different. It's still exposition in that the Bible is driving the message of the sermon, but what we are going to do is draw out the like themes and place them under bold headings as we look to the passage. Again, as we look at the book of Acts, what we see is God's work in the early church. 
that God took a small band of disciples in Jerusalem and Palestine and exploded the Christian church throughout the Mediterranean region, throughout the Roman Empire, at that time, the known world. And how he drew to himself men and women from every tribe and every nation, not just one ethnic group, but from all the tribes and nations of the world to make his church, and he still is doing that. And in our text, God has just poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, and it makes a ruckus in Jerusalem, and Peter turns and preaches to the crowd that gathered, and he says, men of Israel. And the first thing we see is that Christ's death and resurrection were a part of God's definite plan of redemption. This is the first theme we are going to pull out of Peter's sermon. Look with me at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you were here Friday for Good Friday, this was our text, and I don't plan to re-preach that sermon, but what we see is that there is a definite plan in God's uh, world, and his, his plan to redeem uh, humanity is, is a definite plan according to his foreknowledge. Our triune God promises to redeem his people. And there are places all throughout the Old Testament we could go to, but the first glimmer of hope we get is in Genesis 3 was the first hint of the coming salvation. We have the first act of rebellion against God has just occurred. It's a sin. Remember, sin is not just a lapse, but it is godless self-centeredness. And from this first sin, we all inherit a nature of sin. And God is casting our first parents out of the Garden of Eden, but he does not cast them out without hope. And when he's speaking to the serpent, that ancient serpent, the devil, he, tells, he says that there is coming one born of woman, and that the serpent will bruise the offspring's heel, but that that offspring would bruise or crush the serpent's head. It's the first glimmer of hope we get in the gospel, that one day the devil would be ultimately defeated by the offspring of a woman. Throughout the Old Testament, we read accounts and events that point us towards this coming Christ, that, that lay out different clues to this coming Christ. But the Gospels reveal a lot about God's plan that was alluded to in the Old Testament. So we're going to jump forward to the passage that Miss Tasha read for us this morning. Luke 24 is like the go-to chapter for biblical theologians, because in it, we see Jesus' tomb is empty, and his followers are reminded that he had told the disciples that he must be crucified, and that Christ would rise again on the third day. In that chapter, Jesus says that it was necessary that he suffer and die. Starting with Moses and the prophets, which means the Pentateuch and all the other books, we see that Jesus explains how he is foretold in the Old Testament. And then later he explains how everything written about him in the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. What we see in the Bible is that the gospel is not plan B, but the gospel is plan A from before the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. And if you look with me at verse 30, we see that David knew that God had promised one of his descendants would rule forever. 
Verse 30 says, being therefore a prophet, talking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. We have talked much, if you've been here a few years, about 1 Chronicles 17, the Davidic covenant. And if you remember, if you've never heard of this Davidic covenant, what we read in 1 Chronicles 17 is that David, King David in the Old Testament, has just been granted victory over all of his earthly enemies. And in Jerusalem, he builds himself a great house of cedar. And he's in his house of cedar, and he looks out at the tabernacle or the tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant, and it's ratty and it's falling apart. And he says, I live in a nice mansion, and God's ark is in an old tent. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build a temple for the ark. And God says, no, you will not build me a house, David, because I'm going to build you a house. And from your lineage will come a descendant of yours who will rule forever. God says, I will never take his throne from him, and he will be to me as a son. In that passage, we see that God makes a covenant with David in which he declares that David will not build him a house, but that God will build a house for him and would come from him a king that would reign forever. The coming Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah will rule forever. And that's what Peter is talking about in his sermon. And that death has no claim on the Messiah according to God's plan. So the second theme that we draw out of this sermon is that God the Father kept his promise and did not abandon the Son to the clutches of death. Look with me at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, this morning, it is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans. You can find it in Roman history by Roman historians. It's also true that the tomb was found empty. No one in any of the course of history said, you know this Christianity thing, I'm going to debunk it right now because here's Jesus' body. Believe me, I think they would if they could. Eyewitnesses claim that after three days, Jesus was alive. An angel at the tomb stated that Jesus was not there, but he had risen. And he reminded them that Jesus would rise. The grave could not hold Christ. It says in the text, it was not possible. Look at verse 27. Here, Peter quotes Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. If you remember back, this was our passage last Easter. We, we talked about how the psalmist foretells of one that would not decay and he would not rot. Because through this psalmist, God claims that he will raise the sun. And look at verse 31, because Peter points us back to this psalm, where he says, He, speaking of David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So preaching in the Spirit, Peter declares, without reservation, Psalm 16 These verses is about Jesus. 
about Jesus of Nazareth, that he would not die or see, or that he would not see decay. And this promise is not merely spiritual. It is not saying that the apostles had some sort of spiritual experience where they saw a resurrected Christ, but he is saying this promise applies to his physical body. Because here we see in the Old Testament that Christ would not rot, but would rise. Rise from the grave. This coming Christ would overcome the devil, that ancient serpent, would conquer death and reign on his throne forever. Fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Friends, we can be for certain that God keeps his promises. And he would not abandon his son to death. The third theme we draw out of this sermon, if you look with me, is Jesus is truly God. And he is exalted with the Father and is King David's Lord. Look with me at verse 29. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says, I say with confidence, David died, and he's got a grave, and it's still here in Palestine. David didn't rise from the dead. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the archetypal, if that's the right word, he, he, he's, the, he's the king of, of Israel that all the other kings were supposed to emulate. Man after God's own heart. He died, they put him in a tomb, and he rotted away. His DNA was in Palestine's dirt during Peter's time, and it's still there today. But not Jesus. There's no tomb with Jesus in it. There will never be an excavation that digs up Jesus' bone because Christ's tomb is empty. He arose. He ascended to the Father in bodily form. And we have, with the holy God of heaven, with the Father, an advocate who knows what it's like to walk on this earth. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not Emmanuel. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm is quoted in the Gospels by Christ himself pointing to his divinity. As a matter of fact, Daryl Bach, a commentator, writes that Psalm 110 verse 1 is fundamental a fundamental text of the early church's preaching. The main point of this text is that how could the Messiah be David's offspring if David himself calls him Lord? Does the king call the prince Lord? Does not the younger king, the offspring, respect the higher king, his father or his great-grandfather, or ever how many down lineage away he is. Jesus' position as King David's Lord and his position at the Father's right hand show us the supremacy of Christ. 
Jesus is David's Lord. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, not David. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is tightly associated with the glory of God because he is Emmanuel. Remember, Matthew 1 tells us, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The God that came to earth and walked among us. God in the flesh. Bach writes that Jesus did not become Lord after his resurrection, but was shown to be Lord through his resurrection. He was shown to be God in the flesh because he walked out of the tomb. Bach goes on to say that when Peter says, this Lord whom you crucified, know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, he is not claiming adoptionism or this idea that God chose a man and adopted him. He's also not claiming that Jesus became something different than he already was, but it is that God has now made evident who Christ truly is. God in the flesh, the one who is forever eternally past, has always existed and came to earth and wrapped himself in human flesh and walked among us that he might redeem us. The revelation of Christ, this revelation was not done in isolation. It was not done in some far-off country of uninhabited Siberia and then they brought the story back, but it was done among people in Jerusalem and Palestine for all to see. So finally, we see that the church has the testimony of eyewitnesses. Look with me at verses 30 through 31. David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Here we see that the father revealed to David that one day he would set one of David's descendants on the throne, and David foresaw this holy one, and the holy one would not see corruption or decay. Look with me at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says we are not just relaying some story that somebody told us. We are not just giving you some moral stories about feel-good, chicken soup for the soul, but what we are saying is that we saw the resurrected Christ. We went in to the empty tomb. We ate fish with Jesus post-resurrection. Jesus' body rose, and we sat down around the fire and had a fish with Jesus. We felt his scars. We watched him ascend into the heavens. Friends, do you ever think about when you get up in the morning and you, and you read your Bible, and sometimes we kind of ho-hum, i got to read my Bible because I'm a Christian. It's what we do. But that we are holding in our hands that which contains eyewitness testimony to the Lord who died for us. Example. At the beginning of our study in 1 John, what did the apostle write? He said, that which was from the beginning, Christ, that which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. 
Peter says we've seen them. John says we saw this. Even Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as that which is first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What is Paul saying? It's one of the earliest creeds of the church. Christ died in accordance with what? God's word. He was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with God's word. And then he appeared to all of these brothers. Paul is not saying, not only did, Paul is saying, not only did Christ appear to the apostles, but over to 500 brothers at once. Some of them have died. Some of them have fallen asleep. But a lot of them are still there. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he said, some of them are still alive. Go talk to them. As they say on Reading Rainbow, don't take my word for it. Go talk to them. They will tell you. These are eyewitnesses. You can still find them. These men were not mere storytellers. They were witnesses. Peter, James, and John, they saw the Christ transfigured on the top of the mount. These men were once frightened. They were once gripped with fear, running when Christ was crucified. And now they were gripped with the message, standing boldly in Jerusalem and proclaiming the risen Christ. They were absorbed by what they witnessed, and they continued to pour themselves out for the rest of their lives. Most of them, all but one, were martyred and died a martyr's death. Peter tells the crowd, we are witnesses to this resurrection. But he also tells them, you are also witnesses. Look with me at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In John's gospel, Jesus says that when he leaves, the Spirit will come. And the Spirit will lead God's people into all truth and will recall to mind all the things that Christ had taught his church, his bride. And this crowd was witnessing this unique one-time event, the outpouring of God's promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That same Holy Spirit that indwells every single one of you if you are in Christ. Every single human being that trusts Christ is indwelled, marked off, sealed with God's Spirit. Peter says, David was a witness to this coming Christ. The apostles were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And those who heard Peter's sermon were witnesses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Friends, today we have a collection of eyewitness accounts preserved in God's holy word. We have access during our day to more Greek and more Hebrew manuscripts than any other, at any other time in the history of the church. And guess what? None of the things that matter have changed. You say, but I read somewhere, I saw a Discovery Channel, and they said there's this many discrepancies. Yeah, there are things like a place where the original manuscripts might have said he, and the scribe thought that was not pious enough and wrote 
Jesus doesn't change the meaning. There are places where the scribe maybe made a, a, a note in the margins and a later scribe incorporated that into the text. Didn't remove any of the text. As one Bible scholar said, the problem is we have too much Bible in places, not that we don't have it all. And these manuscripts date back thousands of years, especially the Old Testament ones. And these manuscripts show us how God has preserved his written word, this eyewitness testimony for every generation of his church. And we can trust it that what we read is sure. Every manuscript bears witness to the fact that God fulfills his promises. And as Paul tells us, every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Christ. Our God, the God, the only God, does what he promises he will do. And we can trust that. Thomas Jefferson may have left his Jesus in a sealed tomb, but the real Jesus is alive and well. He is risen. Neither Jefferson nor the tomb can hold Christ. Why should we trust God's promises and believe in the risen Christ? Because the crucifixion and resurrection were a part of God's plan from eternity past and are foretold in the Scriptures. Why should we trust God's promises and believe in the risen Christ? Because God the Father kept his promise and did not abandon Jesus to the grave. Because Jesus is truly God. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is one with the Father, and he is King David's Lord. And because we have the faithful testimony of eyewitnesses. Friends, this morning, trust the promises of God and believe in the resurrected Christ. 2,000 years ago, human courts may have found Jesus guilty. 2,000 years ago, the Sanhedrin may have found Jesus guilty. 2,000 years ago, the Romans may have found Jesus guilty, but God reversed the verdict. The Father would not abandon His Son to the grave. The Son's sacrifice for our sin was perfect and acceptable to Him. And his raising of Jesus from the grave was God's amen on what Christ had done. Because he lives, so will his bride. The resurrected Christ is the first fruit. He is the first taste of the new humanity. And we are the second harvest, those who are in Christ. Just as sure as Christ rose from the grave, so will his bride. One day... Christ will return to the earth, and when he does, he will resurrect his servants to a new life like his own. Those whom he paid for with his life will spend eternity with him. Friends, trust this morning that Christ has defeated the curse of sin. So Christian, live boldly. Proclaim the gospel boldly. Live fearlessly, crucify sinful habits in your life, and seek to honor God with the new life he has given you. And for those hearing my voice who have not trusted the gospel, friend, this morning I lay before you that just like me, you were born dead in sin. Just like me, you were born 
in rebellion against the holy God. All of us were. All of us inherited this nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And our sin has, has warranted and has brought upon us a death sentence. You see, when you sin against a holy God, it's not just like a, a small infraction. You know, if I'm walking around on 2nd Avenue checking my mail and someone walks up and punches me in the nose, it's not that big a deal. I mean, to me it might be. But for them, it's not going to be that big a deal. But you walk up and you punch Joe Biden in the nose. It got a lot bigger deal. You're looking at prison time, right? What happens when you thumb your nose at the one who created everything that is, the entire expanse of the universe? Well, that warrants a death sentence. But the good news is, what we celebrated on Friday is that Christ took upon himself that sentence for those who trust in him. There's a cup of wrath that all of us have uh, earned from a holy God. And for those who trust in Christ, he drank that cup for you. So what is your response to the truth this morning, friend? Because when Peter's audience heard the truth, they were floored. In fact, it says that they were cut to the heart. Please look with me at verse 37. Peter has just told them about the Christ they have crucified, and he says, now, when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By asking, by saying, what shall we do? It seems as though they already believed, but now they needed to repent. And this morning, I say the same thing to you. Repent. Believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from serving yourself. And turn to Christ. It is the only way that you can be saved. Paul says that, those who are in union with Christ have been crucified with Christ. And Paul states that the, in Romans that the Christians are dead to sin. So either you are dead in sin or you are dead to sin. This morning, do you wonder why you struggle so much with sin? No Christian will be perfect. You will never hear me preach Christian perfectionism. But we do see in the scriptures that Christians will increasingly gain victory over sin, not because of their own effort, but because of what Christ is doing in them. And so this morning, do you still struggle with being unethical with money? Are you unrepented in sexual sin? Do you wonder why you can't keep from gossiping about the church and everything that goes on in the community? Are you harboring hate and unforgiveness? Or is your hope and adoration for the things of this world? If it is, my friend, cast yourself on Christ because he is your only hope. The cross of Christ breaks strongholds of sin. And either we are a captive to Satan or we are captive to the resurrected Christ. You cannot be both. And if you are not advancing in the faith or growing in holiness, if you are not growing in power over the flesh, 
it is probably because you do not know Jesus. And you will never hear me say, try harder. What you hear me say is, turn to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but after a cold, long winter, right, like the snowmageddon of December, all the rain, all the wind, I have been enjoying a week of unbroken sunshine. And as an unrepentant Anglophile, it is probably no surprise to some of you that I am a fan of the Beatles. Most of their stuff. Some of it gets kind of weird. but, um, And so I have listened to Here Comes the Sun more than a few times as I've studied this week. And as I've enjoyed the sun coming through the windows of my study, and as I have studied this passage and I've listened to that song, I thought, man, what a timely thought. Because 2,000 years ago, the world was cold and the world was dark when God in the flesh broke into human history. The, the world was without hope when God in the flesh broke into our history. And do you remember the line from Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1? It's one of my favorite passages. I know you hear me say that a lot, but it really is one of my favorite passages. Before Jesus is born, we read these words. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And friends, in his great mercy, God sent forth his Son, the light of the world, the light that the darkness cannot extinguish, the light that a tomb could not hold. God, in his great mercy, raised his son. The light burst forth from the tomb and the grave is empty. And one day, all of his church, all of his bride, will dwell in a place where Christ himself is the light. Will you dwell with him? Are you walking in this light? If you have it, if you have that hope, Take heart, Christos Anesti, he is risen. Father, we praise your holy name this morning. God, we give thanks for your great mercy, because we are great rebels, that you in your love sent forth your Son, the light the darkness could not extinguish. Father, I pray for us all today that we would have a renewed vision of that. And those who do not trust you, God, I pray that you would grant them no sleep until they turn to you. Because we love them. But most of all, we love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.